you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Colossians 3, Colossians chapter 3, specifically verses 17 through 19. As you're turning, we have been blessed this morning by our sanctuary choir. John, thank you for your leadership. We've had uh, Brent Coleman leading our chapel ensemble. We've had our brass ensemble with uh, Jackson Vaughn's leadership. And so today has been a day of beautiful worship through the gifts and diversity of music that we've had. Colossians 3, verses 17 through 19. One of the great gifts that we have as we walk through God's Word is the providential synergy, the providential way that he brings topics to us. Uh, The in-laws of our Together for Life program are with us today, and I didn't in any way plan to preach about marriage. It just so happened. I'm thankful that you're here this week. Last week it was wives submit to your husbands. I'm glad the in-laws are here this week. It's a little bit more uh, uh, familiar terrain to walk through this morning. And so we welcome all of our future father-in-laws and mother-in-laws. And we're thankful for our Together for Life program here that has such wonderful fruit even here in the sanctuary this morning. God's Word through the book of Colossians has been at the heart, at the outset, setting a basis, grounding in us in what Christ has done for us. And then we move from His work to what we are called to do in response to what He has done for us. We don't leave that basis and then move on in our own strength, empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's much that we are called and empowered to do. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul, what is everything? What, what does that encompass? And then he says in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, which will be our focus this morning. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Last week we thought carefully about what is often a misunderstood, misappropriated verse of Scripture. Colossians 3 verse 18. Colossians 3 verse 19, the word to husbands, is a word that seems to be so straightforward. We hear husbands love your wives, and our culture reiterates this. There is within popular entertainment uh, a sense in which all marriage, all relationships are founded in romance and in love. So Paul says, love your wives, husbands, and we we sort of internally yawn because we are walking in, in a way that seems to to, to buttress everything that we hear in culture. I mean, if you watch a romantic comedy, a romantic movie in the last 30 years, it's all about how love can overcome anything, that romance has a way of overcoming even distance. If you're Tom Hanks and you're sleepless in Seattle and you call in to a, a version of Delilah and, and you have Meg Ryan that is engaged in Baltimore, love even it can overcome engagement. It can overcome even not knowing one another and you can end up on the top of the Empire State Building and live happily ever after. That's the power of love right there in our culture. So Paul 
he says, husbands, love your wives. And we say there, there's not much to this that's not familiar to us. That first century world that Paul's writing to, it would have been foreign to them to hear husbands love your wives. It seems familiar to us, but in that first century context, a husband's relationship to his wife was one of social uh, advantage. It was one of moving up in hierarchy. It was one to have and conceive children. A husband would have been called to instruct his wife, exhort his wife, rule his wife outside of the New Testament. But when Paul says, love your wife, he, he is saying something that's unique. He is saying something that is exceptional in this first century context. Now, notice what he doesn't do in Colossians chapter 3. Notice verse 20 and verse 21 and verse 22 and verse 23 and verse 24. You do not see Colossians 3, 19 and then seven easy steps to a love-filled marriage that he gives us. There are no admonitions of how to do this. In your copy of God's Word, he doesn't talk about love languages and learning the unique love language of your spouse. He doesn't talk about surprise her with flowers, take her on dates. He doesn't say any of those kinds of things that are really helpful. They're practical. Nothing wrong with them. But notice Paul says, husband, love your wife. Do not be harsh with them. And then he moves in the next verse to what we're going to talk about next week, which are parent and children relationships. So how do we understand the practical way that that we ground Paul's admonition to husbands here this morning? Well, again, the Pauline home is bigger than just the room of Colossians. And so to understand what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, we've got, we've got to open up another door to another room. We've got to allow a little bit of these rooms to speak to one another. And just like we did last week, we opened up the other door to the book of Ephesians. The longest admonition in the New Testament that Paul gives toward marriage is found in Ephesians chapter 5. And it grounds what he's saying here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. So turn with me, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Through verse 33. Maybe you're single here this morning. There's a word for you this morning. Maybe to talk about marriage is a painful subject for you. There's a word here for you this morning. Maybe you feel as a husband already a sense of guilt, already a sense of sort of weight upon you hear Paul's words to all of us here this morning Ephesians 5 starting in verse 25 husbands love your wives notice he just picks up the refrain of Colossians 3 19 notice what he adds as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her in verse 26 having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30, because, why? Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Three principles that I want you to see from Colossians 3, Ephesians 5. It's all grounded around the topic of what does a Christ-centered husband do in marriage. And notice first this principle that we find in verse 25, that a Christ-centered husband is called to sacrificial love. Notice what Paul adds as he's commending husbands. He says, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Six times will he, in these eight verses, bring us back to the central command of love, 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 and love. Six times. The Beatles are right. Paul got this right. Ringo got this right. George got this right. Uh, All you need is love. All you need is love. But with Paul, the type of love that is needed in our marriage isn't phileo, which is brotherly love, a word that we often translate love in the New Testament. It's not eros, a a romantic, at times erotic type of love that can often be translated as love, but it is an agape type of love. That is the word that is used six times here. It is a word that is used for God in describing his love for his bride, a sinful unfaithful bride that he chooses to love not based upon the merit of the recipient but based upon the call of his inner being father son and holy spirit to love his bride for god so agape the world He so loved the world that he doesn't want anyone to perish. You or me doesn't want any of us to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. Now, what is Paul saying in here by using this word? We cannot love like God. We'll do this wholly imperfect. All of us must recognize that. But there is a principle embedded in this utilization of this word that is helpful for us to be reminded of because oftentimes in conversations about marital love, There becomes this practical advice, this this sort of conversation in marriage counseling that goes something like this. Your role is to discover the needs of your spouse. And that person is to discover their needs. And when you meet their needs and then you meet their needs, you're depositing currency in the love bank. And if you have enough deposits and not enough withdrawals, then you can float on the currency and stream of love. And so you'll hear this kind of sentiment that, 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 that your spouse is there to complete your needs, to meet your needs. And so you'll have, uh, in popular culture, Tom Cruise walk into a room and see Renee Zilweger, uh, Zilweger and say, you complete me. Now, you need to be completed husband. But you can only be completed not by your spouse, but by your Savior. And so often, we in our neediness bring into the relationship these unrealistic expectations that her role is to complete us. She is not your Savior. And not called to be that. And so as we, as husbands, fall more deeply in love with the true source 
of our sufficiency, Christ Jesus. So then in the overflow of Christ in us, are we able to love, understanding the model and the display of love? Notice in Ephesians 5 that we see that the model of sacrificial love is Christ's love for his church. It is a love not in word, but in works. It is a love not just in feeling, but in what do we discover? In faithfulness. It is a love that is not based upon sentiment merely, but upon sacrifice. Feelings will leave in marriage. Feelings are fickle in marriage. But faithfulness, that's our call. So you see the model of love, you see the display of love. Again, the display of love under this sacrificial love example is that Christ is dying upon the cross for the church. And so we are called in a like way to sacrificially love our wives. Now again, it's important for us to not misunderstand what he's saying here because most husbands in this room take this to the to the extreme example we have this commando kind of rambo kind of philosophy of of well if if the worst case scenario ever happened i would step in the way of the bullet and and of course many if not all of you in this room would would lay down your life for your family for your wife but it very well may be that what Christ is calling you to do as you take up your cross is to lay down your conceit in your marriage. To sacrifice the desire to always be right in your marriage. To sacrifice the uh, desire to always have the last word in your marriage. To sacrifice a thought life that has erected a barrier that is in between the intimacy emotionally and physically between you and your spouse, that it very well may be that what Christ is calling you as a husband to die to are those things on a daily basis that erect barriers between you and your spouse. There is a model of love here. There is a display of love as we think about a Christ-centered husband being called to sacrificial love. But not only are we called to sacrificial love, we're called to sanctifying love. Look with me in verse 26. As Christ dies for the church, there is a greater purpose than just the salvation of the church, but the sanctification of the church. In verse 26, we see that Christ has died to make her, his bride, holy, us, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And so Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is sanctifying his bride. He not only saves us, but he cleanses us. He not only saves us, but he desires to wash us anew every day that we would confess our sins, recognize that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, you're not the Holy Spirit, husband. You're not called to be the Holy Spirit. But as you love your bride, as you love your wife, as I'm called to love my wife, I am called to point her to the one who is sufficient to make her look more like him. And so the question becomes, are we as husbands pointing our wives to Christ? Or are we standing in the way of Christ? Oftentimes when I'm doing premarital counseling, one of the frequent conversations that we have is that when you say I do, you're saying I do to the totality of the person. 
Not only their present, but their past. Not only their present, but their future. The unknown of both past and the unknown of future. And I oftentimes use the illustration that uh, the best object lesson that you could think of is that when you walk down the aisle, the best thing that you could do is just to carry your luggage with you because everybody brings baggage into their wedding and into their vows. Now, the baggage isn't always bad. The connotation is, is that that's just bad. Well, a lot of our luggage, a lot of our baggage are the good family of origin, faith commitments that were instilled upon us. The good experiences of life. But, but every wedding ceremony has luggage being brought into the sanctuary. And husband and wife, those that are engaged in this room, you cannot check your luggage to the final destination. It, you've got to carry it on. You don't have another option. You bring that luggage into the plane and into the journey of your marriage. As a pastor... One of the things Danielle and I do oftentimes is go to rehearsal dinners. And we walk through the parade of pictures that, I don't know, over the last decade or so has been really popular. There's very few wedding rehearsal dinners that we go to where somewhere before everybody starts saying the wonderful things about the bride and the groom, they show the pictures. And it starts with the, the cute little baby pictures set to great music. And then it moves to the awkward fifth grade elementary school pictures. The groom's got the cow licks sticking up. And then it, then it transfers you and moves you on to... He was, he was in the band, and you see the band pictures. She was a cheerleader, and you move through high school, and then eventually they start dating, oftentimes in college, so you get the whole uh, assortment of, of going to the Auburn game and taking a picture, and then going to the Alabama game and taking a picture, and then always going to the Mississippi State game and taking a picture. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking next week I'm not going to mention Mississippi State. After the Alabama game, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so you go through all of that, and it comes to this just beautiful culmination. There's somebody hiding in the bushes, and they took the picture. He's on his knees proposing. All of the females are going, oh, and everybody's got tears in their eyes, and it's a sweet time. I had a good friend of mine who's a pastor who was telling me the story of coming to the end of one of those prayed a pictures and the groomsmen stood up. They walked over to the MacBook. They had a jump drive. They stuck it in there. And then all of a sudden, Willie Nelson's to all the girls I loved before started playing. <laughs> and every high school and junior high girlfriend of that groom, her face was right there. <laughs> One after another all of the prom pictures right there. It got a little groan-worthy when two of the bridesmaids were shown on the picture. <laughs> he was telling me that the mother-in-law-to-be, was, she was just horrified. I thought, along with him, that it was hilarious. We both said, we cannot wait to use this in a sermon because this is just great material here. But it does illustrate to all of us that all of the past, because the parade of pictures is always the edited parade of pictures, but all of the pictures of our past, they come into the pictures we will make as a couple. So you get it all. 
And all is often beautiful and all is often wonderful. But there are, in every marriage, there's some luggage that got stuffed down into some crevices. And it stinks. And it's a part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In ancient Greece, the night before the wedding, the women would come alongside of the bride-to-be take her outside of the church. This was not a church event here, but they would have this pagan ritual that would symbolically cleanse her so that she would be pure going into the wedding. Now, husband, you cannot do that for your bride. You're not called to do that. But your love is either pointing her to the sufficiency of Christ in her life or pointing her away from the sufficiency of Christ in her life. Are we getting in the way or are we pointing to the way? This is the question that I as a husband must ask myself. And this is a question that you, husbands-to-be or husbands now, must ask of yourself. We're called to a sacrificial love. We're called to a sanctifying love. And in the remainder of our time together, we are called as husbands from God's word to a nurturing love. Look again with me. Because starting in verse 28 through the end of this section of verse 33, Paul takes Jesus' words of the golden rule and he morphs it into the words of marriage here. So in verse 28, love your wives as your own bodies. In verse 29, he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 33, love your wife as yourself. So Paul is saying something that we know as females and males. There, there is a natural tendency. You do not have to be trained Unless you have 10-year-old boys, uh, most, most, most will care for themselves. I'm sorry. That's, I'm just, uh, we have to remind our kids, take baths. But, but most normal humans, you don't have to do that. You, they, they know to care for themselves. They know to feed themselves. There's something inherent in them to do this. We care for ourselves. Paul grounds that in the way that Christ cares and nurtures and cherishes the church. He does this for us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us as his bride. And so he says, in the way that Christ does this, in the way that is implicit and inherent to you as a human, so you're called to love your bride as you love yourself. Now, how do we do this? What does this look like for your life and my life? Well, we do this in our vows, do we not? We are saying in our vows, as we walk to the altar of marriage, what we are committing to, to our spouse, to love and to cherish. And so it doesn't mean less recognizing that there's some of you in this room that have been married for months, and there's some of you that in this room have been married for five or more decades. But there are general principles that we can deduce from our own vows and from God's word that help us think, what does it mean to nurture our spouse as a husband? Well, we can imagine and we know that we're called to nurture and to prioritize our wife's emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. This is a calling upon our life as husbands. We're called to, to care for our spouses in sickness and or in health. 
Not only for the better, but also for the worst of circumstances. We're called to, as husbands, to come alongside and to be reminded that when your spouse held that ring upon your ring finger and she said those vows to you that you were making and she was making a, a commitment to you as a husband and you were making a commitment to her as, uh, her, her, as, as you were the husband and she was the wife. So we prioritize that relationship more than any other relationship. We erect boundaries in the workplace, in the community. And so there is an emotional attachment. We don't go in those kind of interpersonal relationships with other people other than our spouse, other than our wife. We erect boundaries and barriers even in our own thought life. We, we seek accountability, recognizing that, that we have a tendency to, to not think in a way that is honoring to the Lord. So we, as we are committed to our bride, we're committed to purity even in our thought life. We prioritize the relationship by spending time with our wife. This is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your wife is just to prioritize her and to value her by spending time with her. And there's some of you that are in this room that have young children Younger than mine, I've got an 11-year-old, I've got a 10-year-old, I've got a 5-year-old. And one of the greatest gifts that we have to do, because we recognize, just as you recognize, that your children's schedules are so packed with a lot of really wonderful things. And there is a temptation in the name of being faithful parents to your children that you sort of put the intimacy and nurturing of your spouse on pause to nurture and to raise your children... And then when they get out of the family and they get out of the house, 20 years from now, you look at one another and you're strangers. And I just want to remind you what I need to be reminded of is that the best gift that you can give your children as a husband and a wife is a healthy marriage. That one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your future grandchildren and the legacy of your family line is to prioritize that relationship between you and your wife, you and your husband. And husbands, you have to lead out in that. You have to cultivate that. You have to be willing to say, there are a lot of great events, and I love you as my, my son, I love you as my daughter, but I can't be at that this weekend because I'm going to do this with your mom. So in the vocabulary of your children's lives should be anniversary trips. They, they should understand date nights. They should understand that. Not to the neglect of your children by any stretch of the imagination, but there is the temptation to neglect this priority of your vows to your spouse in the name of giving all of your attention, all of your energy to your children. And all of a sudden, parenting becomes an idol that we're sacrificing marriage too. I'd be remiss to just not stop as we come to the end of this marriage conversation and just be reminded of how God's word just speaks to all of our lives. And if I opened up this pulpit here uh, and gave you a mic, there would probably be very few husbands and wives that could not give testimony to God's grace in your relationship. Danielle and I met when I was 17, when she was 18. 
She was a freshman at Mississippi College. I was a senior in high school. We started dating my freshman year, her sophomore year. I proposed to her when I was 19, and she was 20. I had to call my mother and say, Mom, I just left to get my marriage license from the county courthouse, and they told me that you have to come down and sign for me. That's how young we were. That is embarrassing. I just want you to know that. We were really young. We were really naive. And we were really poor also. And it just started. There was no church that I ever served that Danielle wasn't with me. As my girlfriend, then my fiance, and then as my wife. Even as a 17-year-old driving to Port Gibson, Mississippi as a youth minister with kids that were older than me in that church. She was there. So we've just grown up in the ministry together. We've grown up in our marriage together. And we will celebrate 18 years together. And while we were poor financially as students, we were rich in relationships and people in the churches that we serve that invested in us. The Harrisons, they set us down. When I was 20 and she was 21, we were coming to our vows. And and this is what Miss Dot says. She said, marriage isn't easy, David. Danielle, it's going to take you places that you never dreamed that you would go. It will reveal in you both things that you never knew were there. But if you put Christ at the center, you will experience joy and growth like no other human relationship provides. And she's right. We have imperfectly attempted to put Christ at the center of our relationship. And in our our imperfection of trying to live in and through him and to be a husband and a wife that have Christ at the center, imperfectly doing this, but looking back upon it, I can tell you without any shadow of a doubt that he has been sufficient. That I can look back upon our marriage and say that there are joys that we never would have imagined and we have experienced it. We have faced tragedies that we never saw coming. We have loaded up U-Hauls and we have gone to places where we felt God has led us to. And it has been a great ride and I pray for a lot of miles ahead. But this I know, that there are circumstances that when you say I do, you did not see coming. There are trials when you say I do that you will not see coming. There are heights that when you say I do, you will never imagine that you'll be able to climb to them and experience them in your relationship. And there are valleys that you will walk through in your relationship that you did not know the GPS of marriage would ever take you to. But this I know. That when Christ is at the center, he is sufficient. He is sufficient for the lows. He is sufficient for the highs. He is sufficient for the joys. He is sufficient for the valleys. And if I opened up this pulpit, one after another couple in this room would say amen and amen. Because Christ at the center is the very foundation of marriage. Learn love languages Go on dates, do all of those things. They're all good. But at the heart, if Christ is on the periphery, you're missing the joy that God desires in your relationship. 
If Christ's husband is at the edge, you're missing the joy that he promises in your relationship. Where is the center of your marriage? You? Kids? Work? Or Christ? The way I answer that, the way you answer that, it makes all the difference for your marriage, your family's future, this church, and these communities of Birmingham. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we recognize that there is no greater gift than the gift of you. We recognize that you have set for us an example of your love for your bride that compels us as husbands. We recognize and confess our imperfection that we consistently fall short. But today, we as a church, we we look to you, recognizing that there are a lot of rival centers in every relationship. But we desire as a church to put you at the center, not only of our church, but our community, not only of our community, but of our families. So allow us to see what has taken center place. Allow gospel-centered conversations to go forth from this place into our communities for your glory and our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to